unforgettable Christy Brown by Stephen Rudley and C.L. Lines. In the face of seemingly insurmountable obstacles, he accomplished his dream to be remembered not for your human frailties, but for something achieved, something that reached and touched the lives of total strangers. Come on, open up, Christy, she whispered, trying to manoeuvre the nipple into the baby's mouth. His jaws were locked shut. She tried to massage them open but could not. Then, as suddenly as it had clamped shut, Christy's tiny mouth fell open. But now, no matter how Bridget Brown coaxed her 11-month-old son, he was unable to close his lips round the milk-warm nipple. Don't worry, Christy, we'll try again later, she said, and hugged him a little closer. Christy had been born a blue, asphyxiated infant. By the time doctors regulated his breathing, the part of the brain that controls muscular coordination had been damaged. His arms twisted and flailed. He could not sit without support or crawl. He drooled constantly. In 1933, very little was known about Christie's condition, cerebral palsy, and doctors diagnosed him as mentally defective. Nothing could be done for him, they said. Put him in an institution. The Browns refused. They would care for their child at home with his brothers and sisters at Stanaway Road in Kimmage, a working-class suburb of Dublin. Mrs Brown was convinced that her son was not an imbecile and set out to prove it. Day after day, year after year, she read to Christy, talked to him, touched him, trying to get him to respond. And her husband, despite long hours as a bricklayer, washed him, helped him in the bathroom, dressed him. But Christy did not improve. Now it was friends and relatives who spoke about an institution. It was too much, they said, with seven other children at home. For Christy, those first years were like a strange dream. He could hear and see, feel and think, but had no way to tell anyone. He could not even nod his head. He longed to let his family know he was there. How could he break through? Then one day when he was five, Christy sat propped up with his pillows on the kitchen floor, watching his sister Mona write on a slate. Suddenly his left foot shot out, grasped the chalk between its toes and scribbled wildly across the slate. He had never used his foot before. Christy looked up to find everyone staring at him. Mrs Brown understood at once. She kneeled at his side. I'll show you what to do with it, Chris. She drew the letter A. Copy it, Christy, she said. He strained to make his foot work. Nothing. He tried again. There, a crooked line. But that was all. Again he tried. He knew he must keep trying. He had drawn one wobbly side to the A and half the other when the chalk snapped. He wanted to fling it away in despair but felt his mother's hand on his shoulder. Finally, straining every muscle, he managed it. He drew the letter A. He saw his mother smiling, tears shining on her cheeks. Then there was a great shout and he was whirled up onto his father's strong shoulders and paraded triumphantly round the room. Christie's life would never again be the same. Within a year, he could print the entire alphabet, the chalk held securely between the toes of his left foot. In time, his mother taught him to read and write. He also developed a grunting language that those close to him could understand, more or less. 
Christy eventually learnt to use his few controllable muscles and became quite the terror of the family, scurrying at breakneck speed about the house by propelling himself along on his backside, even clambering up and down the stairs. When he was angry, his left foot became a weapon, pinching, shoving with amazing force. He led an active outdoor life too, thanks to his brothers. Enthroned in his chariot, a rickety old wooden go-kart put together by his father, Christy would be pulled and pushed through the streets of Kimmage, even into Dublin. It was a happy time for Christy. He had to be helped with certain things like eating and dressing, but no one pampered him and he felt like a normal boy. Sometimes the stares of strangers vaguely disturbed him, but the laughter and loving voices surrounding him would quickly divert his attention. Then, one hot summer afternoon, the axle of Christie's chariot snapped. For the first time, Christie's brothers were forced to leave him behind. Christie sat on the couch by the window while his brothers played ball in the street. He watched their hands, tough, agile, capable, pick up the ball and fling it. Then he looked at his hands, all twisted and shaking. It was as if he were seeing those hands and himself for the first time. Turning away, he crawled upstairs and studied the mirror in which were reflected his wobbly head and lopsided, slobbering mouth. In one fierce movement, he shattered the mirror with his left foot. Christie's family bought him a new chariot, a sturdy modern wheelchair, but he refused to go out. As summer passed into autumn, Christie curled up in a chair and stared into space. Finally, it was Christmas. Each child received a single gift. As one brother flicked a brush indifferently across the tiny squares of colour in the paint box he'd been given, Christy edged closer, instantly fascinated. Within seconds, he had exchanged his own gift of toy soldiers for the wondrous paint set. Later, holding the brush between the toes of his left foot and dabbing it on the red square, Christy slowly drew a cross down the middle of a page. It worked. It was magic. And it was his. Day after day, Christy worked upstairs in the bedroom, a sheet of paper tacked to the floor, painting with his left foot, slowly teaching himself the language of colour, shape and form. Paintings piled up beside him, still lifes of familiar objects, then family likenesses, landscapes of places visited and wild bursts of passionate colour, abstract expressions of his turbulent emotions. When he painted, he forgot his loneliness and pain. He felt strong. At age 12, Christie entered a colouring contest for 12 to 16-year-olds sponsored by a national newspaper. Two weeks later, he was startled by his father bursting into his bedroom. Look, look, you've won, he cried, waving a newspaper in Christie's face. Of all the contestants in Ireland, he, Christie Brown, had won. Eventually, Christie turned to writing as well as painting to express his chaotic emotions. At first, he borrowed images from movies he'd seen and language from his favourite authors, especially Charles Dickens. However, the feelings were pure Stanaway Road, Dublin, Ireland. And, for a while, they were successfully channelled through his writing. But time was passing. Christie was 18, with the same needs as any other young man. Yet he was buried alive in his useless body. He felt increasingly frustrated and very, very scared. Then one night, a strange
stranger knocked at Christie's door and changed his life forever. Hello, Christie, the distinguished-looking man said. Perhaps it was his voice, authoritative yet gentle. Christie liked the stranger at once. He was Dr. Robert Collis, a famous Irish paediatrician. Years before, Collis had participated in a charity function for deprived children. There, he observed a small, badly crippled child with a face out of a Renaissance painting and the sharpest, brightest blue eyes he'd ever seen. Who's that, he had asked. Christy Brown was the reply. Years later, when the first cerebral palsy clinic in Ireland was about to be opened, Dr Collis sought out the charismatic youth. Now, Dr Collis told Christy about the clinic and the new exercises developed in America that might help him. It wouldn't be easy. Will you try if I help, he asked. The effect of Dr Collis's words was overwhelming. He was offering Christy a chance at life. The clinic was just a long, barracks-like room in the grounds of the Dublin Orthopaedic Hospital. Here, Christy, along with other youngsters stricken with cerebral palsy, was put through an intensive program of physiotherapy designed to improve muscle function and communication skills. Despite all effort, Christy showed lasting improvement only in his speech, and even that was limited. Perhaps he might make more progress if he stopped relying on his left foot then he would be forced to develop other muscles. This was a terrible price to pay, but Christie promised to try. Even this enormous sacrifice did not help, however. Christie had gone too many years without therapy. Both Christie and Dr Collis knew that little more could be done. At the clinic, Christie matured greatly as a person. He made many new friends, but it was the children with limbs twisted and flailing, faces contorted, mirror images of what he himself had looked like as a boy, who affected him most. Their courage in the face of pain helped him to put his own life in perspective. Slowly, he began to accept himself for what he was and who he was. He would never be physically normal, but he could think and feel, and he could write. And now he knew he had something important to say. He hated his affliction, but in a strange way it brought beauty into his life. His isolation enabled him to see shades of meaning in the commonplace. Christie was determined to write his own life story and share with countless strangers his special awareness and vision. But the story had to be put down on paper, and Christie had promised to avoid using his left foot as much as possible. He dictated the manuscript instead, with all the younger brothers and sisters taking turns to help. It was a gruelling task. A year passed. Hundreds of hours of work had produced thousands of words, but they had no shape. Clearly, Christie needed guidance. Who could do it? Why not Dr. Collis? He quickly dictated a note. Dear Dr. Collis, I'm trying to write a book. If you don't mind, please come and help me. Christie Brown. The following day, as Christie sat reading by the fire, Collis walked in. Well, let's see it, he said. Even though the manuscript had problems, the doctor could see Christie had talent. Without hesitation, he offered to help, for Christie's Dr. Collis was himself a writer and a teacher as well, exactly the person Christie needed. Christie was more than an apt pupil. He took in every criticism. Collis encouraged Christie to read modern authors and spent hours talking to him about literature and the techniques of writing. He was astonished by how much Christie had learned without ever having been to school. 
His knowledge of English literature especially was formidable. Work on his book became frustrating, however. So much of what he thought and felt was lost because he couldn't dictate fast enough. Something was missing. Finally, Christie could bear it no longer. He gave up dictating to his brothers and finished writing the book his own way, with a pencil held between his toes. He felt alive again. After years of effort and numerous revisions, Christie's autobiography was finally sent to a publisher. It was accepted immediately and published in 1954 under the title My Left Foot. Christie was 22 years old. Thanks to the sale of this book and his other writing, and to his membership in the Disabled Artists Association which paid him a monthly stipend, Christie acquired a modest income. He was given an electric typewriter, and typing with the little and big toes of his left foot, he could now keep pace with his thoughts. He could even do at last what he'd always longed to do, learn about the real world not just from books, but by living life in the raw. He travelled throughout Ireland, getting the feel of the place, the people, the landscape, trying to see the whole pattern instead of scraps and fragments. Always Christie continued to create, painting constantly and producing a wealth of stories, poems and articles. It was a period of enormous growth, which in 1970 brought forth Christie's extraordinary novel, Down All the Days. If My Left Foot was the story of his life, Down All the Days was its very texture. A poetic outpouring of word and soul, the novel is a portrait of a poor Irish family and their life, the ugliness and beauty, the savagery and the love, viewed through the eyes of an all-seeing crippled boy. In the long-drawn-out piece of a summer evening, he listened to the young voice of his mother singing around the for-once-quiet house, the brood of children having fled like birds, finding the master gone and the cage door open, but he remained behind for his cage was a wide and airy place then, with his thrush of a mother singing. In the sweet flowing stream of that voice, almost he could lose himself, happy in the simplicity of her ways. Once, when he had seen his father touch his mother's hair almost timidly, a throb of joy and absurd ecstatic hope filled him. Then it was gone, washed away, on the harsh returning wave of his father's voice demanding his supper and he was back once more in the walled garden of his thoughts, chasing the shadows of such moments. Down All the Days became an international bestseller, and suddenly Christy Brown was a celebrity. Critics called him a genius. Christy's parents had shared in the excitement and pride of My Left Foot, but neither lived to see the success of Down All the Days. Their deaths had been devastating to Christy, but his grief was tempered by the gratitude he felt towards them. Their gallantry and love had enabled him to find the special strength to go on. Eventually, he moved from the house in Stanaway Road to a cottage next door to his sister Anne, who cared for him after their mother died. Though he spent many happy hours with Anne and her family, he felt a great gap in his life. One night, Sean Brown threw a party in London for his brother Christie, who had just completed a TV interview with David Frost. Across the room, Christy saw a lovely blonde woman talking with friends. She turned and smiled at him. Christy looked away. He felt embarrassed, painfully self-conscious as he sat in his wheelchair. Then all of a sudden she was sitting beside him talking. 
Her name was Mary Carr and she was a dental nurse. Christie's biting wit disarmed Mary and put her at ease. He was a rather good-looking man, with curly brown hair, a neatly trimmed moustache and beard framing a sensitive, expressive face. And of course there were his eyes, deeply blue, compassionate, radiating an electric intelligence. When Christie returned to Dublin, they corresponded, but soon that was not enough and they began visiting each other. On October 6, 1972, they were married. Christie signed the marriage register with his left foot. The announcement in the New York Times quoted Mary as saying, He is the most gentle person I have ever known, and I love him very much. Mary became Christie's anchor, his companion and best critic. He called her the major miracle of my life. Their years together were incredibly prolific ones for Christie. Besides painting, he published three volumes of poetry and two novels, A Shadow on Summer in 1974 and Wild Grow the Lilies in 1976. Another novel, A Promising Career, was completed in 1981. Christie was still infuriated by his dependence, and he still got depressed, but no amount of trouble could conquer him. Against seemingly insurmountable odds, he faced the world with wit and courage. Again and again his spirit triumphed. In the process, he achieved what he once dared only to dream. To be remembered, as he said in an interview, not for your human frailties or mannerisms, but for something you did, achieved, left behind, something that reached and touched the lives of total strangers. Christy Brown died on September 6, 1981, at the age of 49. He and Mary had been married for nine years. With love, he once said, the burden is eased and more lightly borne. For more RD Talks, visit readersdigest.com.au. Brought to you by Readers Digest Australia. Narration by Zoe Mernier. Sound production by Ricky Price.